on today's program, an encore presentation of a special one-hour program on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the historic Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. You'll hear a speech of Dr. King that was never broadcast until this program first aired it. I'm Dennis Bernstein with CS Song. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. You are listening to Flashpoints. My name is Dennis Bernstein. In early 1965, Selma, Alabama was ground zero for the civil rights movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. believed the time was right to secure equal voting rights for blacks. In Selma, blacks in jail far outnumbered blacks registered to vote. As Dr. King observed in his autobiography, this was not accidental. Instead, it reflected a calculated strategy to maintain white political hegemony in many areas of the South. Official violence directed against the civil rights agitators was endemic. In late February 1965, Jimmy Lee Jackson was gunned down by police during a demonstration in Marion, Alabama. Nine days later, unarmed voting rights marches were brutally beaten, tear-gassed, and whipped by helmeted state troopers and white civilians at the Edmund Pettys Bridge in Selma. Soon after, civil rights leaders began planning a huge march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. King hoped to see, in his own words, the greatest witness for freedom that had ever taken place on the steps of the capital of any state in the South. Marches set out on March 21st, 1965, from Selma. 54 miles and four days later, 50,000 people marched on the state capitol in Montgomery, the so-called cradle of the Confederacy. As the swelling crowd gathered to call for equal voting rights for blacks, the smell of victory was in the air. One journalist called the march the most spectacular people's movement in American race relations. But as the march ended and the throng dispersed, Dr. King wrote that the scent of victory in the air gave way to the stench of death. We were reminded that this was not a march to the capital of a civilized nation. We had marched through a swamp of poverty, ignorance, race hatred, and sadism. Carl Binkert, a designer from Detroit, was there. Ben Kurt traveled to Alabama with his tape recorder and camera to record history in the making. He recorded many speeches, interactions, and songs, much or all of it, which has never before been broadcast anywhere. But Carl Ben Kurt was not just an observer. He was a marshal in the Selma to Montgomery march, charged with protecting the vanguard, including Dr. King. Busy with his duties, Ben Kurt handed his tape recorder to a stranger, a reporter named Steve Nevis, who produced a beautifully wrought narration of what happened in Montgomery on March 25th, 1965. The end of the 54-mile march from Selma to Montgomery is four blocks now from its destination up the street and a gentle hill to the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama. There are at least 20,000 people in this procession, but no one has been able to make an absolute estimate because no one has been able to see it all at once as it winds through the streets of downtown Montgomery. In the lead is Dr. Martin Luther King. Next to him, Dr. Ralph Bunch, the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. 
Germans, the whole vanguard is being protected by groups of marshals from the civil rights movement, their arms locked surrounding Dr. King. Dr. King, a few moments ago, was back in the procession, three or four, four rows deep. We are told this was for his protection. There was some concern as to whether there might be some snipers. The procession has moved up to the Capitol, preceded by five army jeeps with three men each, rifles at the ready. They've been acting very much as the Secret Service does, going before the procession to check windows and generally look at the crowd, looking up constantly, looking for open windows or anything which might be harmful to the procession. Right behind the army is a car carrying Chief United States Marshal Jim McShane. And he has a number of men here in plain clothes to protect against any sort of incident. Walking along with the procession is the Assistant United States Attorney General for Civil Rights, John Doerr, who has been with this problem since it erupted in Selma almost three weeks ago today. Behind the vanguard are numbers of actors and actresses who came in last night to perform for the non-violent troops, so to speak, on a primitive stage in a muddy field at St. Jude's Hospital on the outskirts of Montgomery. The procession has now stopped temporarily halfway up Dexter Avenue leading to the Capitol. Behind about the first 15 rows are dozens and dozens of American flags, state flags, a banner which reads, Integration works in Hawaii, it can work here too. Behind that a sign which says, Canada too. And there are many more. Up ahead now, about three blocks away, is the capital of the state of Alabama. An all-white building made of masonry, and some wood, typical of southern architecture of the period. Up on the dome flies the Alabama state flag on a white field, red stars and bars, a modification of the Confederate flag which flies just below it. There is no American flag flying on the Capitol here in Montgomery, and we haven't seen one all week. A couple of days ago, everyone is convinced that they saw the Confederate flag flying over the Alabama flag, but that still seems to, that since uh, seems to have been reversed. Perhaps you can sing, perhaps you can hear the group singing as they come up behind, stretching from one sidewalk to the other, well they're narrowing down a bit now, singing America the Beautiful. along the sidewalks here in Montgomery on the way to the Capitol. Many white people, some heckling, some making uh, signs which must be described as vulgar, but very little trouble otherwise. A great deal of silence, a great deal of interest, and there are many Negro people mixed in with the white bystanders on the curb, watching very silently for the most part. 
up the hill now, about two blocks away at the Capitol, we can see the steps barricaded. There are sawhorses or horses of the sort used to keep crowds back along the steps. And behind the immediate barricade is what appears to be a phalanx of either state or county police. And sitting up under the pillars are a large number of people who must be employees of the state of Alabama who work there in the state house. There is a platform set up at the foot of the steps from which there will be a program of speeches and prayers and messages, among them an address by Dr. Bunch, who, as we said a moment ago, is the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. A number of clergymen from throughout the country will also speak. Dr. Martin Luther King is to address the group. Let us march until no American 
has to skip a meal so that that children may eat. Yes, sir. March on poverty. March. Until most of men watch the streets of our cities and towns. Yes, sir. In such a job that do not exist. Yes, sir. Let us march on poverty. Let us march. Until wrinkled stomachs in Mississippi are filled. Yes, and idle industries of Appalachia realize and revitalize and broken lives in sweltering ghettos are mended and remolded. Let us march on ballot boxes. March on ballot boxes until race beggars disappear from the political arena. Let us march on ballot boxes until the stadium misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs yes, sir. will be transformed into the of the Wallaces of our nation. Yes. Tremble away in silence. Let us march on ballot boxes until we send to our city council, yes, sir. state legislatures, yes, and the United States Congress, yes, men who will not fear to do justly, love yes, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let us march on Until brotherhood becomes more than a meaningless word in an opening prayer, but the order of the day on every legislative agenda. Let us march on ballot boxes until all over Alabama, God's children will be able to walk the earth in decency and honor. There is nothing wrong with marching in this sense. The Bible tells us that the mighty men of Joshua nearly walked about the walled city of Jericho. The barriers to freedom came tumbling down. I like that old Negro spiritual. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho in its simple yet colorful depiction. That red moment in biblical history. It tells us that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. Up to the walls of Jericho, they marched with spear in hand. Though blood and ram horns, Joshua cried. Cause the battle hand in my hand. These words I have given you just as they were given us. By the unknown, long dead, dark skinned originator. now long gone black part, the queen posterity. These words in ungrammatical form. Yes, sir. Yet with emphatic presence for all of us today. The battle is in our hands. We can answer with creative non-violence. The call to higher ground to which the new directions of our struggle summons us. Yes, sir. The road ahead is not altogether a smooth one. There are no broad highways that lead us easily and inevitably to quick solutions. We must keep going. In the glow of the lamplight on my desk a few nights ago, I gazed again upon the wondrous signs of our time for the broken promise of the future. And I smiled to see in the newspaper photographs Nearly a decade ago, the faces so bright, so
so solemn of our valiant heroes, the people of Montgomery. To this list may be added the names of all those who have fought and yes, died in the nonviolent army of our day. Medgar Evers, three civil rights workers in Mississippi last summer. William Moore, as has already been mentioned. The Reverend James Reed. Jenny Lee Jackson, four little girls, the Church of God in Birmingham on Sunday morning. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. In spite of this, we must go on and be sure that they did not die in vain. Yes, sir. The pattern of that feet. As they walked through Jim Crow barriers, the great stride toward freedom. Is the thunder of the marching men of Joshua. The world rocks. Beneath that tread. Yes, yes, sir. My people, my people, listen. Yes, sir. The battle is in our hands. Yes, sir. The battle is in our hands in Mississippi and Alabama and all over the United States. That is exactly what we don't want and we will not allow it to happen. But we know that it was normalcy in marriage that led to the brutal murder. It was normalcy in Birmingham. It led to the murder on Sunday morning of four beautiful, unoffending, innocent girls. It was normalcy on Highway 80. It led state troopers to use tear gas and horses and billy clubs against unarmed human beings who were simply marching for justice. In Selma, Alabama, that led to the brutal beating of Reverend, J- Reverend James Gray. It is normalcy all over our country. Yes, sir. It leaves a Negro perishing on the lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. It is normalcy all over Alabama yes. that prevents a Negro from becoming a registered voter. Is the normalcy that recognizes the dignity and worth of all of God's children. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that allows judgment to run down on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future behind the dim unknown standing God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trapping out the faith. He's loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His tooth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Lifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah.
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. outside the Alabama State House in Montgomery, Alabama, where the Selma to Montgomery Freedom March concluded on March 25, 1965. program is Flashpoints, and you're listening to never-before-broadcast footage from the historic Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. The footage comes from the collection of Carl Bankert, a retired designer from Ann Armour who captured more than 30 hours of speeches, conversations, and song on his tape recorder. On May 31st, 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sat before a packed house at Brown Chapel in Selma, Alabama. The day before, girls and boys received freedom diplomas for their participation in the Selma to Montgomery March. Now Dr. King, in a never-before-broadcast speech, stepped to the microphone to address the crowd. To all of the distinguished leaders assembled here, President Reese and all of the freedom-loving friends and brothers and sisters here in cell. I told you last week that I would be coming right back. I think I told you when I first came here back in January that Selma in some way was going to be my home until we could get real freedom in this city, and I still mean. I'm happy to see you out in such large numbers tonight, and you're out as you always are. It's a glorious experience to come to this community over and over again and see the kind of enthusiasm, the kind of determination that you so well reveal. And I'm absolutely convinced that when people get this determined, when people are this alive and when they are set on fire, so to speak, with the spirit of freedom, there is nothing can, that can stop them short of the goal that they seek. And we're all very proud of you and we are happy to be a part 
of the great movement that is taking place in this community. We work in communities all over this nation and all over the South. But I think if we in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had to have a sort of blindfold, a secret vote on the favorite community in which we work, I guarantee you that almost 100% of the members of our staff would say we love Selma, Alabama, and the Negro people of that community and the people of goodwill who have come there more than any other community that we work in. Now we haven't finished our work in Selma. I wish we could get through with it by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, but it isn't over yet, and it will not be over that soon. You know, the pharaohs never give up easily. Go back to the Old Testament, and you will notice that after plague and plague and plague after plague, the hardened heart of Pharaoh still, still stood. Now things still aren't right in Selma. And we can't stop until they get right. We aren't going to get mad. We aren't going to be bitter. We aren't going to indulge in hate campaigns. We aren't going to act like some of our opponents. You know, they just hate so much until they can't be rational. I was just talking with uh, Walter Ruther. I was delivered the commencement address the Tuskegee Institute, and they gave uh, Mr. Ruther an honorary degree. I also should mention that this great woman from this community that we love so dearly, Mrs. Romina Boynton, received the Alumni Merit Award this afternoon at the commencement. saying to me, he says, you know the thing about hate, when a man's mind is filled with hate, it has no room for reason. You see, and you know really, when you look at this movement, we have seen this over and over again. I was talking to late President Kennedy one day, and this was after the Birmingham movement, and he said, you know, Maybe we shouldn't be so hard on Bull Connor after all. He's done more for civil rights this year than anybody in America. <laughs> you know, there's some truth in that. And uh, these people get mad and they can't reason. And so they end up helping the movement much more than harming the movement. Now we aren't going to get like that. We're going to we're going to keep our minds clear. We're going to keep our hearts pure. We're going to keep our morals high. And we're just going to center the very philosophy and meaning of love in the core of our lives. And if we will do that, 
We get Selma Street, we get Dallas County Street, and we get all of the counties all around this street. Now, we have said that until the business leaders of this city, what we call the economic power structure, to use a sociological phrase, until they will do something about conditions in Selma, we aren't going to buy any more downtown. Now, they have a little suit on our machine. They have, they're, they're suing some of us. They're CLC and they're suing me. And uh, for one thing, they won't get a thing from me even if they win the case. It's part of the fact that uh, our, some of our segregationist brothers say that I'm making all this money. You know, anytime I do anything, they said I was building a hundred thousand dollar house and I had fleets of cabinets and all this. Uh, but you see, the interesting thing is, out of the hundred and twenty staff members on SCLC, I'm the only one that doesn't get a salary. They beg me to take one. I don't even get a salary from SCLC. The only salary I get is from the Ebenezer Baptist Church. And that's not large enough for them to even pay the lawyers' people. This is a super They don't have the good time to sue it. But you know, you can sue all you want, and you can't make anybody buy what they don't want to buy. And all we are saying, we aren't trying to put anybody out of business downtown. We are just trying to put justice in business. That's what we're trying to do. Oh, no, we are not bogged down in the negative. We are accentuating the positive. And we are saying that we are no longer supporting segregation with our money, and we are no longer spending our dollars where our persons are not respected. This is what we are saying. Now, another thing, we have a First Amendment of our Constitution. And we are going to insist on First Amendment privilege. Now, that, they didn't, the founding fathers didn't just put that amendment there. See, the reason I could never be a communist is because I believe that the great moments in history have been the moments when individuals were left free to think. For some sacred in a nation that talks about freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly. You can't do that over in Russia. You can't do that in communist China. Because Karl Marx said in substance that in this interim period, between what he called the conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, in this class struggle, and the emergence of what he called the classless society, there had to be a dictatorship of the proletariat. I ain't gonna put up with no kind of dictatorship. I don't believe that. This is why America, even in her darker moments, 
has at least touched greatness. Because deep down within that is something in our nature which says that you have the right to protest for right. Now, Mr. Baker, just well know we aren't doing anything wrong. We want to pick it, and if we want to pick it, we're going to pick it if it takes filling up every jail in South This is a right, it's a sacred right. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention tonight. Now the second thing is a follow-up of what Reverend Andrew Young said. We've got to integrate schools and sell them. Now you know when the Supreme Court rendered the decision back in 1954, very interesting. What they said, very interesting, they said that segregation generates a feeling of inferiority within the segregated. And they went on to say that separate facilities are inherently unequal. Yes, that does. I came to see this even before we had a civil rights bill, and even before we had the integration of public accommodations, even before through a suit, we got the Atlanta Airport integrated, the Dog's House restaurant there. I remember one day I had flown in from Montgomery to Atlanta. And I was a gentleman, a white gentleman on the plane. He was my seatmate. He was from Mobile. That plane had come from New Orleans and stopped in Mobile and then Montgomery, Atlanta. I had a wonderful conversation with him. We got to Atlanta and I had to change to take a flight from Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, we got uh, ready to leave on that flight. And Rivella discovered that they had a little engine trouble, and so they brought us back, and I was very happy about that. I don't like to get up when the engines are acting up. It isn't that I don't have faith in God in the air, it's just that I've had more experience with them on the ground. So we got back. So then we got in and they started giving out tickets, you know, to get your dinner because we were going to be held up two hours. So we went in the Dodge House restaurant there in Atlanta and, of course, I saw the white people going to these tables and I just took a seat and then I noticed that they didn't serve, they wouldn't serve me. They started serving all the white people, so finally... A lady came to me, one of the waitresses, and said, uh, now we have a place for you right back here. And they had a curtain up there. And uh, I said, you mean to tell me that I'm supposed to go behind that curtain? <laughs> she said, uh, she said, now don't, 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 don't get upset about it. She said, the lady shouldn't, shouldn't act up now because things have been very peaceful. And I said, I'm not going to act up. I'm just, So finally she went and got the money, and he said, now I'm embarrassed. He said, I'm really embarrassed about it. 
congregation and all of its commission. Now, Reverend Newsworth informs me that there will be a meeting tomorrow night of all of the parents who received letters and those who did not receive, urging you to go through the process of having your kids, your sons and daughters transferred to the formerly all-white school. Now, the first four grades are the ones that are to be integrated, but we're asking everybody to apply from 1 through 12. We emphasize the first four because those are the ones that are definitely to be integrated, but we are just seeking to get as many transport as possible from the first through the 12th grade. And this will make for a better school system all the way around. Nobody needs to tell me Reverend Young was right. I never will forget it. I went to a school in Atlanta. Both of you were in high school. There's some fine teachers there. But number one, the school was overcrowded. The curriculum was different from all of the white schools in Atlanta. Do you know I was in the 11th grade and I discovered something very strange. This is something you ought to hear. I didn't finish high school. I took an examination and went to college from the 11th grade. I was a student in college right after I had turned just past 14 years old. I was a freshman at Morehouse College in Atlanta. But here's what I want to tell you. If I had finished Washington High, they told me that I was going to be the valedictorian of my class. It was a good, big class. I was going to be the valedictorian. I had gone and graduated. I was going to college. Now, you know, when I got to Morehouse and took the reading examination, now here was the valedictorian in a class of a school that had 7,000 students. And that school didn't have the facilities to teach 2,000 students with. But they had 7,000 students. And when I took that examination in Morehouse College, I was reading on the level of an 8th grade, 5 month student. Eight five. That was what And I had to spend my whole freshman year in college trying to learn how to read. The whole year I had to spend catching up to get my reading up to 13 plus as a freshman in college should have it. That was because I had gone to an inferior school. The teacher had to spend half of the period getting all in the class. Too overcrowded, people frustrated and everything else. Now, don't let anybody make you think that segregation is all right. And I'll say it to you before I reiterate it tonight, that we must make it clear that we are through with segregation. Now, henceforth, and forevermore. Now, the final thing I want to say is, and it looks like we're going to have a voting bill soon. The South can't block anything any longer than Washington like they used to. You know, anytime they wanted to block 
legislation, they filibustered, you know how they used to talk. And uh, they used other methods to keep it from coming through. Last week, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to pass a voting rights bill. And that bill has now left the Senate and the House. And the House of Representatives is going to pass a stronger bill. House of Representatives will probably repeal the poll tax in that bill. And this will mean that we'll have to go to conference between the House and the Senate. And then the final version of that bill will come out, and then the President will sign it. Now, we are hoping that it won't take too long to do this because we have a summer project. We have more than 1,500 students. We have really, we have more than 3,000 applicants already. We've got to start streaming because we really can't use more than 1,500 uh, to keep it from being so large that we can't really control the situation in these communities. But we're going to work in more than 75 counties all over the Black Bell South, and we're going to try within a 10-week period to double the number of Negro registered voters in the Black Bell South. Now, I believe we can do that. If we work hard, if we organize every block, if we knock on every door, and if we stimulate every community, I believe we can do that. And things will change. Don't let anybody fool you. Man, pick me up in Columbus today. Dr. Smith, he brought a city council of Tuskegee. Now, let me go on that council. And something very interesting emerged in Macon County. First, they were very wise. They revealed the wisdom of restraining, using their power with restraint. That's very interesting. They, they elected several Negroes, but they, they made sure that they did not put all of the white people out. They were saying them something that we must work together. They could have put all of them out. So they, they, they used their power correctly. And this is what we're going to have to do all along. But Dr. Smith was saying to me that there hadn't been a single recommendation that he and Rem Buford made to that city commission that didn't go through. And I'll tell you, it went goes through because those other white men on the council realize that they can't get elected without the Negro vote. The mayor knows that he can't get elected without the Negro vote. And I said last week, there isn't a single problem in race relations that the state of Alabama has that cannot be solved by 400,000 Negro registered voters. So we are going all out and we solicit your cooperation as we embark upon this all-important job not by ourselves alone. We are really out to save the soul of America. And I tell you, 
They can't save the soul of America without in the process saving our white brother. They are free. I was sitting in a restaurant in Atlanta just two or three days ago to an integrated restaurant. And I had gone there to kind of get away, get away from things, to get something to eat. As I was sitting there, someone came from the desk and said, you have a call, Dr. King, and I wondered who would be calling, who even knew I was there. And on the other end was the voice of a white man. And said, Dr. King, I could not allow this opportunity to pass. I hate to bother you while you're eating. I hate to call you away like this, and I'm somewhat ashamed of myself. That I was just in the restaurant where you are now. You may have noticed six men sitting about three tables. I said, yes, I remember. He said, I wanted so bad to come over to shake your hand. I want to tell you how much I admire you. And I want to tell you that I'm with you in what you are trying to do. But I was afraid that some of the men sitting with me wouldn't understand. Is that man free? When you enslave an individual, will you enslave yourself? How many of our white brothers are slaves to that fear? Slaves to that prejudice? security of stained glass women. They know that segregation is wrong. They know that they should take a stand, but they are not free. They are fed, and they have allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to permeate their lives. And we've got to save those preachers. We've got to put Christianity in the church. And I say to you that as we walk these streets, and as we walk States, we are doing more than saving ourselves. You know, we are putting Christianity in the church and we are making the marketplace do this. We are giving life to life. It may well be that when historians write about this period, they will say that the Negro did more in the civil rights struggle than get civil rights for himself. When he started walking the streets, marching down, talking about jobs. Yeah. Call the whole nation, cause the whole nation to reevaluate the whole structure of joblessness. And the war on poverty came into being. Yeah. Negroes started boycotting schools up north. He calls the authorities like Dr. Cole, former president of Harvard University. And look at the whole structure of the school system and say that quality education isn't a reality for anybody. And we started sitting down at lunch counters. Students on college campuses started thinking about peace. They started talking against capital punishment. They started thinking about great issues. And nobody can call the student generation now a beat generation. It is a generation of concern and activism. We've done a lot in this civil rights
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking at Brown Chapel in Selma, Alabama on May 31st, 1965. And that wraps up this special edition of Flashpoints. We want to thank Carl Benkert for providing the audio footage from his collection. Thanks also to Claiborne Carson, director of the King Papers Project at Stanford University, for his support. Special contributing producer for this program is Jeannie Marie Basansini. We appreciate her hard work. Flashpoints is produced by Dennis Bernstein, along with associate producers Leslie Kane and C.S. Song. Good evening. Me. Alcohol that my pops swallow bottle me. No apology, I walk with a bold on my shoulder. It's a cold war, I'm a colder soldier. Hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king. I ain't using it for the right thing. In between lean and the fiends, hustle and the schemes. I put together pieces of a dream. I still have one. I got a dream. We gonna work it out. We gonna work it out. We gonna work it out. I got a dream. We gonna work it out. We gonna work it out. We gonna work it out. I have a dream. I got a dream. That one day. That one day. I'm a little deeper than myself. I gotta find the way. I have a dream. My dream is to be free. My dream is to be. Dream is to be, my dream is to be free. The world's 
me looking in the mirror. Images of me getting much clearer. Dear self, I wrote a letter just to better my soul. If I don't express it, then forever I hold inside. I'm from a side where we out of control. Rap music and the hood play the fatherly role. My story like yours, yo, gotta be told. Trying to make it from a gangster to a golly role. Red scrolls are stole slaves. The Jewish people in cold caves. Hate has no color or age. Slip the page. Now my race became freedom. Right dreams in the dark, they fall, but I can see them. I believe in heaven more than hell. Blessings more than jail. In the ghetto, let love prevail. With a story to tell. My eyes see the glory and well. The world waiting for me to yell. I have a dream. I got a dream. One day. We gonna work it out. I got a dream. We gonna work it out. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rada Keel. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.